What's going on, entrepreneurs, startup hustlers, everybody looking to build and grow something. You want to pay attention today. We've got an amazing guest for you. We have, you know, entrepreneur Travis Steffen, who has built not one, not two, not three, but actually eight different businesses, had an exit in these eight different businesses. Let me just tell you a little bit more about Travis. He's a serial entrepreneur. Yes, he's had eight successful exits to date across a variety of industries I'm going to get into. Uh, he's gotten companies into the Inc. 500. He is a published author about business entrepreneurship, and he has either written for or been uh, written about in the top business publications. I was checking them out. We've got uh, uh, we've got uh, Forbes and Inc. A lot of the different uh, publications out there. He's also, uh, you know, on top of that, he just decided he would go out and get a PhD. He's a doctoral candidate in marketing, and he serves as a growth mentor for Silicon Valley's top accelerators. Prior to entrepreneurship, he was a collegiate and professional athlete and a professional online poker player. Super excited to have you, Travis. Welcome to the show. There are over 32 million businesses in the U.S. and over 90% of them will never break seven figures in annual sales. So how do we as entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs break into that seven figures club? This podcast will relentlessly share the secrets, strategies, and tactics I've used to create three multi-seven figures businesses and bring in even more successful entrepreneurs than me to share their inspirational stories and tactics to success. You can create your dream business in life right now. So buckle up and let's go. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I should hire you to do PR, honestly. So that, that was awesome. Yeah, no, really excited. Uh, you know, you don't, we don't always know them. We've got a lot of different people that send uh, podcast guests in and and uh, every once in a while you get a podcast guest. Wow, this is someone I really want to learn from. I really want uh, the audience to be able to learn from. So uh, amazing background that you've got and, and success. And I'm sure there's been some roller coaster rides in between there. But just a little bit uh, as you were growing up in Iowa. Um, what any key events or, or something where, you know, at some point you're like, ah, maybe entrepreneurship is the way for me. I know you were an athlete uh, when you were younger, but, uh, but what, what key events uh, led you towards maybe becoming an entrepreneur and independence? Yeah. What a fantastic question. Thanks for having me, by the way. I'm, I'm really excited. I, I have been working kind of in anonymity for many, many years behind the scenes, giving all credit to the teams and so forth. And this is kind of my first foray out into the world uh, after last year's exit number eight. And, and by the way, there there have been a number in there that have not exited. So uh, there are a lot of like swings oh, yeah. and misses along the way, as, as I'm sure everyone is, is well aware. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, growing up in Iowa is very blue collar, farmer factory, you know, that's kind of the environment, lots of wonderful, wonderful people, great family. We didn't have a lot of money growing up or anything like that, which is a huge blessing in hindsight at the time, obviously you want to be just as entitled as all of your rich friends. Right. But, uh, in hindsight, I would not have traded that for anything, you know, just having a good support system. I was very, very fortunate that I didn't grow up with a whole bunch of trauma, you know, from, parental influences or, or familial influences at all. And the older I get, the more I realize that that was, you know, I, I really lucked out there because a lot of people have struggled with that, that I've met over the years. Um, so I was very fortunate to not have money growing up, but also to have people that believed in me. Now I didn't have any business mentors. I didn't have any entrepreneurial mentors at that point. I didn't even know that that was an option because that, I mean, I just saw what people did for work around me and the people who, I thought of as entrepreneurs from, from TV, they were all 
highly educated, uh, rich people and wore suits all the time and didn't have a bunch of tattoos like me, didn't speak kind of in a, they didn't use a whole lot of profanity and didn't love being in the gym or anything like that. So that was kind of how I grew up was just very, very hyper-masculine culture, that sort of thing as well. So being smart was not socially rewarded. Um, that's kind of what got me into athletics was just kind of that feeling of trying to be accepted and eventually did thankfully go to the university of Northern Iowa to play football. And, uh, the formative event I would say is the fact that I had absolutely no plan B whatsoever. I was convinced that I was going to go to the NFL. Uh, the rest of the world would disagree with you as would have every single person on that team and all the coaching staff. You know, I was good enough to get to that next level, but there was no way I was ever going to get to the the level that that came next. Um, but I was too stubborn and and ridiculous to to realize it at the time. And the thing that, you know, kind of shook me awake was the fact that I I mean, it was outside of my control. I just popped my Achilles tendon full tear, rolled up the leg one day in practice, oh, wow. just started to run, didn't even get hit. It was just a fluke, yeah. something that just happened. And, you know, the, the athletic trainer at the time said, look, your um, football career is probably over, but you're not dead. So, you know, it was a, a rude awakening, it took about six to eight weeks of just depression and woe is me to yeah. shake myself out of it. And um, oddly enough, rather than saying, hey, I want to get into entrepreneurship, because I still didn't realize that, that was an option. Uh, I didn't know anyone. I was not going to school for business. I was kind of just you know, not really paying attention in school anyway. I was very blessed to be able to just have a kind of a basal degree of intelligence and good test taking so I could just show up and, and do well and not actually learn anything really. I just could kind of figure out the answers. Um, and I didn't really know what that meant until later on. But um, at that point in time, I just had heard of a, a friend of mine had called me and said that this guy in his dorms at the University of Virginia was making like a half a million dollars a month just playing online poker. And that was such a crazy moment. I remember it so vividly that I was like, oh my God, like this is an option. This is an option, a way to continue to compete. And I can do it without having to be some sort of freak genetically gifted athlete. Because the, the other thing that was true, which I didn't really even recognize until later, there's aside from the physical gifts that you have to have to play at the next level in any sport, you also have to have the cognitive gifts to be able to see the game so quickly. I didn't have that. I couldn't make those connections in the moment in the same way that everyone else did innately that would have gone on to have a pretty incredible career in the league and whatnot. So um, I just, I wasn't cut out for it and I was too stubborn to admit it. So what I was what able to do what position did you play in football? Great question. So I, I, uh, in high school, I was a defensive lineman and got to college. Okay. I was too small for that. So they moved me to linebacker. Uh, the linebacker yep. coach at the time was Scott Frost, um, at the university of Northern oh. Iowa, who then went on to coach at Oregon Nebraska. and central Florida and then Nebraska most recently got fired. I was rooting for him because he's so awesome. He's such yep. an incredible coach. Yeah. And then I moved to defensive back because that was kind of more my natural size in division one. And the coach for that position was Chris Kleiman, who's now the head coach at Kansas state. Um, and oh, wow. you no, know, he, he went on to before that was the coach at North Dakota state, which his quarterback was Carson Wentz and uh, then Trey Lance. And so all through that time, I did not realize how awesome I was getting mentors, not in business, but in achievement yeah. in like structured performance and it took a long time to recognize like the influences that those types of things would play 
on my life. Um, but I realized that online poker was like the next thing that I was going to get obsessed with. So I deposited my last hundred dollars. I was broke, obviously a college student and immediately yeah. lost it that day. And then was like, okay, there's something here that I don't know. And I'll be damned if I'm not going to figure it out. So because I was so used to the structure of collegiate athletics, I mean, everything is planned for you every single day, your meals, study hall, workouts, you know, anything that you're doing with the team, conditioning, practice, weightlifting, like it's a schedule for you every day, meetings all the time. And so I just took that structure and I said, how can I apply this to, to being like the best online poker player I can be? I had to create that for myself. So I bought every book I could find, just put it on a credit card and um, basically bought like uh, access to some of the online poker training sites on the internet at the time. And, you know, all the high stakes pros that were online pros were using this piece of software called Camtasia, which was pretty new at the time to record their screen and verbalize their thought processes as they were put in various situations. So you could suddenly hear inside the mind of a nosebleed stakes pro that was like winning or losing a million dollars in a specific game. Um, and I just saw that and I'm like, this is the key. If I just put the reps in here and I just keep showing up and learning and evolving my understanding, you know, this could be really incredible. Now, over the course of a couple of years, I ended up transitioning from student to instructor on the online poker training sites, wrote a book um, at 20 years old. That was my graduate thesis that got turned into a book that was sold on some of the big online poker like websites like Poker Stars and Full Tilt Poker at the time were massive. Um, and yes, they were you know, was using software to overlay data on all my opponents that I was data mining behind the scenes. So I would, I had like 24 tables overlaid across two widescreen monitors and was just playing for hours a day. I would not even see the outcome of hands. I just kind of knew what to do. And boom, April 15th, 2011, what the poker industry calls Black Friday, the DOJ comes in, uses oh, yeah. all the funds and says no more online poker in the US. Now, thankfully, a couple of weeks prior, I had been like momentarily inspired to just for vanity reasons, start my first company because I was also getting into mixed martial arts. And I saw I saw the, the tap out guys who actually looked like me and like, you know, they spoke like me and they had tattoos and they were really into sports. And I saw those guys and, and they were making like $500 million a year or something like that at the height of tap out in the early days of the UFC and saw that. And I'm like, I think I could do that. You know, I didn't have any context. I had no business acumen. I had absolutely no education. Um, and I had no mentors at all. And I was just in like my apartment in Iowa. And so I withdrew a chunk of my bankroll and then started using my student loan checks to fund that first business and uh, racked up a huge credit card bill and just learned kind of on the job as necessary, but I didn't know what I didn't know. So as soon as that, you know, uh, the, the Black Friday hit the poker industry, I had a branch to swing to. I was really bummed that, you know, because I was about to move to Vegas um, to, you know, this place called the Panorama Towers, which is like the home for so many of the online pros. It was like the Mecca for that profession. And, you know, Years later, I was able to, you know, buy a place in the Panorama Towers. I don't actually live there. Um, it's, it's a rental unit right now, but I knew that was a, a loop in life that I needed to, to close in some way, even years later. Uh, but that set me off on this journey of trying to apply the same structured learning process to 
starting a business. And um, it was a, a blessing because I realized, hey, what am I doing with my life? I was getting into MMA. I was getting into poker. I'm like, I'm either getting punched in the face for a living and not contributing anything to humanity, or I'm trading money with a bunch of other nerds on the internet like me and not contributing anything to humanity at all. Like, what is my legacy at this point? And so that's what started the journey. That's a long-winded answer to, of what started the journey. And it's been a, a wild ride ever since. Great answer. So, so started with athletics because, you know, and I'm, I'm from a small town uh, too in Southern Utah and in those small towns, like sports is life. And so that is, you know, kind of the, the thing that people look up to. And there's not a lot of entrepreneurs in small towns that you're probably learning from us. That's kind of how it was for me. And so then you're going through that, you make it to college. Uh, athletics is a football player. And you know, it looks like that's kind of the end of the road. You have the injury. Uh, funny, my business partner also uh, had an injury like that. He was a really good uh, player to safety. But uh, so you have that. And then you get into online poker. But you're starting to create this formula. And you mm. learn some values and principles from mentors who become really successful, you know, coaches in, in college football. If you had to like talk about maybe some of these values and principles that maybe you learned from some of these mentors that you've utilized for success in business, what are some of those values and principles you might list out? Like, hey, this yeah. this works, this works, and this builds team and culture, that, that type of thing. Yeah, I mean, and I've, I've probably made every mistake in the book um, along the way. So I definitely didn't know all this stuff or make the connections early on. But in hindsight, the, the first instrumental lesson was just, you know, mental models and frameworks are kind of the lines to color within in the coloring book of business, right? It gives you the structure for the piece of art that you want to create. Um, and it creates like a way to engineer that outcome. Uh, so that was lesson number one. And lesson number two is just, I need to find people to learn from. I need to find people that can, because it was still earlier days of, of I wouldn't say the early days of the internet, but uh, it was difficult to find a lot of the information that you know is just so prolific today and entrepreneurship is a lot more sexy you know today than it is than it was back then or at least that was my perception um so i got in, involved with a, a student business incubator at the university of northern iowa not a degree program okay. not yeah. not a, a major or a minor of any kind but they had a benefactor that funded this little incubator of student businesses and they would give you an office and they would give you computers and they would give you some resources to learn from and so they, all you needed a business was a business plan. And I didn't, I didn't know what that was. So I went to Barnes and Noble, got a book on how to write a business plan, wrote one that night, just following the formula in the book, entered the competition and won. And they were like, this is awesome. How did you figure out how to do this? And I said, I followed, I followed a roadmap written by someone else. Um, over the course of time, that's been super instrumental. Every exit has, I've been non-competed for three to five years in that sector. So I've had to reapply that playbook and iterate on it. And every time, you know, I've tried that same playbook and it's failed, we've implemented learnings around that, uh, that failure as well to then start the next one. And the, the next best, like biggest piece of invite or insight was just, you know, if you can get all the information and figure out the, the outputs that you need, you can reverse engineer the inputs. There is a way to engineer success. Absolutely. Um, but you have to be willing to do a lot of things that aren't sexy. You have to be willing to get really, really curious and you have to give up your need to be seen as successful, fancy toys, cool things like that, you know, chest puffing, trying to be the authority, uh, and just go be a student forever. 
ask dumb questions, find people that, that are great at this thing that you're terrible at, but you know that you need to be bad at. Cause by the way, the, the tap out guys, the guys that started that company, you know, just through persistence over the course of time, you know, one of the founders is now close friend. We were business partners for a while. We'll probably be business partners again. Um, and that's just through trying to create value for people who have created value for you, whether it's directly or indirectly. But honestly, the only way I could find a mentor was I just found a DVD with, you know, young entrepreneurs that had made it and they were imparting wisdom. And I just cold called everybody on the DVD and, and just continue to try to be persistent. One of them picked up the phone and, and she was willing to give me a, a shot at like, you know, Hey, yeah, I'll hop on the phone with you once in a while. And you tell me what you're up to and I'll tell you what I think. And that was how it went. And I didn't even know that that was a mentor mentee thing. I didn't know that was a thing. I just knew that this person knew things that I didn't know. And I was willing to go to the ends of the earth to get that information. So as we kind of unpack uh, this formula for success, obviously, when you've had eight exits with eight different companies, sounds like different industries, there is a success formula. And so you're not going in assuming that you know what's best and trying to recreate the wheel. You're finding someone who's done it, someone who's created a roadmap. In this case, you started with a business plan, found someone who wrote a book about it. There's, there's some simple solutions in there. And, and how many people listening right now are building a business where you actually haven't looked at all the books or you haven't gone online. And, you know, back in the day it was, it was helpful to have a mentor in person, but sometimes in today's world, boy, you've got all these videos on YouTube and different things. You can reach out to people who have actually done what you want to do and really learn from them. They might have books, they might have programs, they might have videos on YouTube. And so those are really successful formulas that you've been able to put together and now recreate in eight different businesses. So tell us if you would about that first successful business and how did that get launched? What was the idea? What was the product or service? And, and what was that first journey like, you know, yeah. putting together that, uh, that first successful business? Yeah, I'll give you a quick rundown on each of them, actually. The, the first oh, awesome. one was... Yeah, uh, the first one, the first exit was uh, a mixed martial arts clothing company. It's basically a tap out club, oh, you know, and, and we did equipment and clothing for that industry. It was like kind of like that Ed Hardy affliction era of clothing. And I, I, as you can see, I'm not like a fashion guy. I didn't know anything about fashion at all. I just, I saw a business and was like, okay, like, let's do that. Cause that was how my mind worked at the time. It was not the idea factory that it is today. Um, and at the time that was just, it was my entry point. Like that first idea served as the entry point. And I would never recommend someone start a business because they have an idea. That's where a lot of my biggest failures have come from. Um, so over the course of time, I kind of was able to learn from that and you know, started a, a, a company that was in financial technology and sold that, started an app company, sold that, started a, an online personal training uh, engine and, and sold that and uh, did the same thing with a staffing company for engineers and product managers, social media automation, uh, virality for publications online, and uh, cannabis compliance, back of the house type stuff for licensed cannabis businesses. And there were many in between that did not exit. Um, there were many in between that I, I built that, did, that I was not necessarily the founder of. So I don't take credit for those, for those companies that went public or sold or anything like that. Um, those are not on my roster as exits or anything like that. I don't see those as my wins. I see those as wins that I helped others uh, get to along the way. And, and there have been a number of those, but the playbook really has just been trying to figure out, by the way, a big hack is 
when you're looking for people to teach you these skills, like look for people who are where you want to be. Don't look for the people who are creating things to sell you because all those people are going to have misaligned incentives. They're not going to have incentives to tell you the truth. They're going to have incentives to tell you what, what they need to tell you to get the sale. Um, so the people that are telling you, Hey, this is the greatest thing in the history of humanity. Like for example, I love Russell Brunson's books, but funnels are a tactic. Funnels are not like something that everyone should jump in and be like, funnels are the answer, right? There are four steps before that, that, I mean, you need your, your, uh, strategy, which is birthed by your growth model, which is birthed by your product channel market and, um, and, and I'm forgetting one of my fits here, product, market, channel, and model fits, right? Um, all those things need to fit together, which then birth your growth model, which then birth your strategy. Then you get to tactics, but you know exactly what tactics you need. And some of those involve funnels, right? But Russell Brunson owns a funnel company. So he's going to have a vested interest in telling you that funnels are the answer. Now, he's one of a million other people that are really successful in one thing that are going to tell you that's the greatest thing in the history of humanity. But that person is usually a suboptimal mentor if you're just getting started because they're not going to be giving you the truth, not the full truth, right? They're going to be giving you, here's what worked for me and here's what I sell, right? So find someone who's not selling you stuff uh, or someone who's objective and can tell you, tell you the truth. And it's just much more useful information. Yeah, no question about it. And it's someone who's who's done what you want to do. And and a lot of times you see that between someone who is a business coach or has like this little thing that they do, but it's not always that they've built the, that successful business in an actual industry. And so definitely very different there. So what is your decision process? A lot of people right now listening and the question I think that a lot of them are asking is, am I in a business that has a future? Am I mm. in a business that that could be sellable, that mm -hmm. there could be an exit that's truly valuable? What is your decision-making process in mm -hmm. determining if you're in a business that's worth investing your time, blood, sweat, and tears in? Mm -hmm. Wow. Great question. I mean, a couple of things that have to be true before I even get to that question. First, I need to optimize myself. Okay. Like the biggest leverage point in creating a successful business is managing your own psychology. It's a roller coaster. Mindset. Many people watching know, right? Like, yes, mindset and also like leverage, right? So for example, I've got like a little accountability group where we create very focused goals each year. We narrow them down in terms of our, our area of focus. We hold each other accountable and help each other towards those goals every single week, whether they're inside or outside of business. So we're all taking massive leaps forward beyond the ones that we could take ourselves. Um, and we just do that because those are people that we respect and we don't want to let down. Um, and it just allows us to create a lot more leverage ourselves, just like that public accountability, et cetera, et cetera. So like yourself, that's one piece, obviously. Um, there are a million gurus that do mindset and things like that. So I won't go too much into that. Um, my biggest like day one question, like for example, people will ask, what do you do when you have a new idea? Uh, first thing I'll say is you try to forget it. You know, that's, it's honestly, it's a, a big hack that I learned <laughs> over time. You try to forget it because that idea came from my brain and yeah. I'm an outlier in the whole curve, in the, in the, the statistics of my customer base. And what I think might be a good idea might, there might be good parts to it, but realistically, almost hundred percent of time, it is some degree of wrong. 
Now, if I instead say, what is a customer segment that I want to get super passionate about? Now, that idea, by the way, had a job. That job was to bring me to the table to start something new. It's done its job. Thank you. Move on. What's a customer subset that has budget to spend on solving their problems? It's a key question. Doesn't mean there aren't more, you know, there aren't really noble groups doing great things that need problems solved. But if you want to start a business, the economics of that business will not be present if there's no money in serving that customer subset, right? Um, so if they cannot pay for your solution, you will not be able to sell it to them, uh, no matter how awesome it is. So a market with readily available contact information and money to spend on solving problems. Find at least 20 or 30 of those people who fit with that, that particular you know, kind of segmentation criteria and just do a series of structured interviews and do not come to the table thinking you know the answer and try to take that information and fit it within a pre-existing idea to validate your own feelings or pre-existing notions. Like just get curious and have conversations, record them, listen to how they describe the problems, listen to where they're saying they're trying to find solutions, listen to what they're saying that the value would create if they could actually acquire it. And once you've done enough, like in first and foremost, there are two answers. They're never enough, but around 20 or 30 is usually enough to like start something. Go back and find patterns, like go back and look for patterns on how all these people are describing their problems. Because what you've got now is you've got the customer in a patternistic fashion telling you the value they need and the fact that it's a gap across the board. You know they have money to spend on it. They've also told you where they're looking for solutions. So that tells you what marketing channels would be viable, which allows you to back into your business model and allows you to see what kind of product you need to create because products are built for channels. You cannot fit channels around products, right? Um, and then they're also describing the pain and they're describing the potential pleasure. So that then gives you clues on how to speak to them. And like, if you can nail all those things just with that information, you're going to have a huge head start and you're going to have a lot more of a, a certain path in the early days of that company because you've, you've given yourself a head start on market, right? They've got budget to spend. They've got a problem, which then gives you clues on the value prop for your products. And then it also, when they've told you the channel that they're looking for solutions on, tells you here's exactly how you're going to distribute that product, how you're going to grow it, et cetera. And through that lens, you can also say, all right, what business models would support that channel? Because for example, if you're doing consumer social, you're not going to be able to feed that engine with paid ads or a sales team. Like the, the model just won't support it. The economics aren't there. So all that is to say, I would get really curious early on get the answers from the customer base, let them pave that yellow brick road that you follow. And don't try to be some sort of like crazy visionary that just has all the answers. Let them give you the answers. You know, this is when you look over at your friend in the seat next to you and, and cheat off of their paper. They're that person. Like you can just come to class and get all the answers and they're right there feeding them to you. Um, so that's like one of the first things that I would suggest for somebody early on. Big head start. Yeah. yeah, great, great way of breaking that down. Find that customer segment. What is that market like? And then really diving in, asking 20 or 30 people, not having any preconceived idea or biases. Well, I think this is really your problem solution, but asking them, shutting up, listening. They're explaining the problem. 
and helping you identify some potential solutions, see if it's fixable, if it's something that you can do and do profitably. So I, I think a big mistake a lot of people make when they're you know first getting started with their business or they're they're kind of in those early stages is they're trying to market to everybody mm-hmm. versus you know really identifying a niche that they can serve and then understanding, like you said, the language that they're using. So for example, if someone's trying to provide a, a product or service for, you know, quote unquote, small business owners, well, there's, you know, tens of millions of those, you need to really narrow it down. And so, for example, your most recent, you know, business exit uh, growth flow uh, that you and your team uh, have been building here for years, um, what was the process like of kind of, uh, you know, going through as a case study? Hey, this this was the ideas. I talked to these people. This was the problem. And then we kind of developed this solution. How did that look like? Great question. So, um, I mean, first and foremost, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell the audience something, and they're probably not gonna listen to me, right? Um, uh, and and honestly, it's I wouldn't have either. Um, so when I when I tell you something like this, you know, it, it's one of those things that like you're gonna have the propensity to want to skip steps because you think you know and you're impatient. I was I've been there too many 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 times. Um, but like, if you're able to invest more early on into what the path needs to be into your growth model, into your strategy, um, when you actually start taking action, like it's going to actually like yield, or if it doesn't yield the results you want, you know, exactly why, um, if you just go through a series of guessing and trying different things, like, Hey, I've I've got a new business. I'm going to try four different marketing channels all at once. And all of them are going to get maybe 10% of my attention. Uh, We're not going to be the best in the world at any of them. We're going to be like mediocre at best. And it's not going to yield results. Oh my God, nothing, nothing works. This entrepreneurship thing is a scam, right? You kind of have to go through that process and experience the pain in order to internalize that lesson. Very few people are going to have enough discipline to hear something like this, which they're probably hearing everywhere and listen, right? Because they don't know the stakes. So with uh, a company like Growflow, so um, in my work as a mentor at some of these accelerator programs, oftentimes I'll find entrepreneurs that have kind of caught the tiger by the tail in terms of the the forfeits, right? That we talked about earlier. And um, these two guys, Rufus and Tom, went through a you know a, a an accelerator program run by a friend of mine, and. They did everything that that my lesson said, and like it it worked. Um, but they realized very quickly that they were not the kinds of people that really wanted to build an organization. They didn't really want to build a company. They wanted to build a product. They were they were having a really good time building things, and not necessarily having those things be companies. They were solutions. So that's when we got together and and uh, you know partnered up to build what Growflow became. And uh, early on in that process, it was very, very, very customer driven. Early on, like the idea was not to start that company. The idea was actually to start, you know, to cash in on the green rush and, and start like a, a consumer facing cannabis company or, you know, a, a brand or a dispensary chain or something along those lines. But through a structured set of customer interviews, all the customers said, like, this is not the way, like it's a saturated market in, in the states where it's legal already but we have these other problems and they're super painful and they're but there's only one option for us right now in this state uh, and we have to go with it by law so please come and save us 
and they were just screaming it. And it was also the nascent early stages of that industry. So not a lot of entrepreneurs were jumping in. It was still kind of gray hat. Um, and, you know, I had been participating in other highly regulated industries before in finance, in gambling, and, you know, various other ones that are difficult in that sense that have a lot of constraints that you won't find in other businesses. So I felt that it was really unique timing because the legislation was all moving in that in the in favor of sweeping legalization over the next several years. Uh, and I thought it was a really unique approach because those guys had already followed instructions that I had kind of laid out in, in that program. And so I was like, all right, you know what? I had just raised money for another company at the time. So I had to install a CEO over there and it was a tough decision, but it was the right one. Um, and then over the course of, of um, you know, three years, we were able to really, really rapidly scale that company and build it up to about 150 people. And um, we ended up selling it to another industry participant who's kind of complimentary service offerings. And, um, you know, that company is now being led by really, really smart people that have a lot of experience. Uh, so that was kind of a, a little look inside what that journey was like. It wasn't all sunshine and rainbows. Businesses are problems, right? They're, it's a specific problem set. And if you're coming to the table, wanting there to be some reality where it's just raining money on you and you're able to just fly around the world and do whatever you want and work whenever you're inspired to do so, you're in for a rude awakening. That is not the game. It is going to be every single problem you can think of and more will pop up and you get the privilege of being able to solve them. And if you look at it as a series of puzzles that you start to enjoy, it can be a really fun ride. But if you view it as a giant house of cards that could like get torched at any moment, you're going to stress yourself out like crazy and burn out. So it really then comes back to you as, as the founder and your ability to manage your own psychology. Yeah, no, no question about it. So as you're going through this process and, and you're, you're building it, how do you know if you actually have a business that has the potential to be mm -hmm. that valuable to be sold versus yeah. I, I think 90% of businesses really don't have that possibility. Mm -hmm. And from day one, they're kind of doomed to be a business that is going to have a ceiling on it. Mm -hmm. It's business that maybe is 100% dependent upon you as the business owner. It's not really sellable. What are some of those key mm -hmm. steps to take to actually yeah. build something that can be sold? Because even if mm -hmm. you don't want to sell it, it's going to be you know, typically yeah. more successful, more profitable, lead to an actual being yeah. able to work on the business versus in the business type thing, you know, from yeah. Emith Revisited. But uh, what, right. what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, these days I actually, you know, help founders create what I like to call exit ready businesses. And by the time we're done with that process, most of them don't want to sell. Most of them come and they're on fire, right? And they're like, I want to get like, I want to get this business off of my books. I'm going to die, right? And um, by the end of that journey, by the time you've created something that's exit ready, you usually don't want to sell because suddenly you've got a mechanical, like repeatable machine that just is essentially like a, a factory. Um, and you then get to kind of pop in and do very specific things. And part of that journey. So first and foremost, to answer your, your question, you need to create a transferable asset. If you think about if you wanted to buy a business, you would not want to buy a business that the founder is having to work in the trenches every single day, 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 hours a week. Um, so that the business can continue to just be at where it is notwithstanding growth, right? Because if that business was continuing to grow, usually even if they're stressed, the founder may not be looking to sell as often. Sometimes they will be. Um, but if you're able to create a machine that 
has repeatable outcomes and you don't need to be present in it for it to create those repeatable outcomes. And you could just kind of parachute in uh, another class of leader to kind of take the reins on the operations and the culture of that business and allow it to continue to do what it does. You're going to get a lot of people coming to the table wanting to buy it, especially other industry participants, private equity, all those different things. You could also slide into an investor seat and install a new CEO and just kind of advise the areas of the business over time. That's what a lot of folks end up doing uh, because it just ends up becoming a cash cow for them and they can go focus on other things. So um, being able to kind of plant the flag on what the finish line is, like, I don't want this business to need me in order to grow. I want to be able to go on vacation for three months and check in here and there and know that everything's great. Right. Um, and to kind of create that plan for that bridge between where you are now and that moment, it happens in pieces over time of installing and creating new leaders in the machine, ensuring each piece of the machine functions in line with your growth model that follows that strategy. Right. Um, so all those things, when combined, lead to an asset that can be sold. Now, you can use an M&A broker, you can use an investment bank, um, you can use a great set of attorneys that can run the whole machine. Uh, they're all pretty expensive because it's a, it's a transaction with a lot of really high stakes gotchas in it. Like don't skimp on that piece of the process and try to find a template online and just take a little bit more money for yourself. It is not worth it. I've made that mistake as well. And, you know, found myself at, after my fifth exit, like a million dollars in the hole after five exits because of the slap in the face I got from that particular situation. So expensive lenses to, to view the world in. But um, if you do these things right, and if you're careful, you can avoid a lot of those big high stakes situations. So as you're building that business, that product or service, taking the next steps, what are some of the strategies you found successful as we're coming in here into 2023? And mm -hmm. obviously the market is always changing and it's certainly dynamic and depends on the industry with which you're working. But what are some of the concepts that you use when you're looking at a, where a company's at in terms of increasing and growing when it comes to marketing, distribution? Like these are the things you should start looking at or thinking about when you're creating productive, profitable marketing strategies. You mentioned sales funnels, you mm -hmm. know, with click funnels and, and mm -hmm. online marketing. You've got uh, paid marketing. You've got, mm -hmm. you know, affiliate programs. You've got uh, SEO. Mm -hmm. Like what are some of the different yeah. things that you should think about when creating a winning marketing plan right. to grow and scale? So first and foremost, marketing is a tactic that leads to an output, a specific output. That output is growth, right? If you can explain that early on, where like growth is holistic throughout the entire company. It happens with retained buyer in the product that's continually engaged. That's your retention and engagement, right? And that's all fed through like acquisition and, you know, activation in that process. Now, the best companies in the world do not have linear channels feeding them exclusively like paid ads or like uh, just sales and, and sales funnels and so forth. Those are a piece of the process, but they're a piece that do a very specific job. If that's your entire plan for growth, it becomes really, really difficult to grow that company past a certain point. Usually, even if you've hit uh, product market um, model and channel fit, like if you're feeding it with linear channels like paid ads, 
those channels will decay and you're eventually going to oh, yeah. siphon out your best fit customers over the course of time and you're going to plateau. Um, so that's kind of like the, like you need to have a more holistic view of the overall business, because if you think of it as just marketing, sales, fulfillment, and, and engineering and whatnot, like these are silos. They all have their own individual priorities. And sometimes if your incentives are rich, those people that are working on those KPIs are going to do things to reach their goals for their own compensation that sacrifice the KPIs around them. And you don't have a machine that works together. You have little pieces of different machines that maybe sometimes can, can partner up, right? So all those things are really important to keep in mind. So the biggest thing you need is a holistic view of growth. Everything is, is basically run by like your growth efforts. Your product is meant to create a very specific outcome, which has a growth metric that's foundational. And then marketing feeds that machine. So all of them need to be in lockstep, working together with one another and not sacrificing each other's KPIs. The way to do that, in my mind, is always to have a really well-communicated qualitative growth model that basically shows you how all these pieces are connected. Because again, if you're feeding with linear channels, it's just people in, money out. But when you run out of the, ne the necessary people through those linear channels, you're screwed. And that, that's when people panic and say, I'm in a house of cards and we've plateaued and we don't know why and we don't know what to do. And how familiar is that story? You know what I mean? So yeah, through that familiar. lens, yeah. yeah. So through that lens, if you think about some of the biggest and most successful enduring companies in the world, the more people they feed into the machine, the more people it spits out on the other side. And they've created a self-driving series of interconnected cycles or loops, right? And so I wrote a book about viral loops called Viral Hero. Um, that's one type of, of several types of different loops that you can create. And there are loops in retention, there are loops in acquisition, there are ways to connect all those. Um, but all that is to say you've created a qualitative growth model. Let's look at one, for example, the earliest days of LinkedIn is a great example here. The earliest days of LinkedIn. Um, so their model was basically like reminiscent of consumer social. They were monetizing through ads and they were like, this is your business network. It's like the business version of Facebook, right? And they knew that because of that model, they did not have access to many channels. They couldn't use paid ads. They couldn't use sales. They couldn't use, you know, enterprise tactics. They couldn't use a lot of these channels. They couldn't use PR, right? Any of these that could work for other models would not work for them. They had the economics to support B2C virality and SEO, and that's it. So they basically said, we're going to create these content loops such that, hey, we have a B2C virality loop for the customers that come in. They're going to, a certain percentage of them are going to invite several people in their network, right? So they try to increase what's called the branching factor of the number of users that each user is sending invites to, increasing the conversion rate on those invites, right? That's when you get into things like funnels because it's a tactic to serve a very specific goal. Um, but in so doing, right, they also were creating a user-generated company distributed content loop, which means every user that would come in would create a profile. The company would then package that profile information to optimize it to be indexed by Google and other search engines. So every user that was fed into this machine not only created a wider breadth of content that allowed LinkedIn to rank, and by the way, they did the same thing for their companies, their company names, created a wider breadth of content that, you know, you Google that company name, you Google that entrepreneur's name, LinkedIn comes up. 
every time they came through the system, they also a certain percentage of them invited other colleagues to also be present to do that same thing. So then if they fed that machine with a linear channel, like paid ads, because if they raise money, they can use like, you know, non-sustainable channels because they can have a burn rate by design, then they could get those loops spinning faster. But they knew that over the course of time, it wasn't just customer, like traffic in, customer out. It was traffic in, customer who then creates more customers. See what I mean? So that exponential process then creates a long enduring company. Once you top out those channels early, you can say to yourself, based on this market that we have access to, what other solutions might they need? So years in, LinkedIn's like, all right, let's create our job boards. Let's create our business and sales tools. And they suddenly have different economics that unlock new channels that they're able to then use, like for example, direct sales, because they're selling higher priced products like access to sales navigator or access to their job boards. Those economics can support a direct sales team or they can support paid ads and things like that. But they knew, know every time they feed someone in from sales or paid ads, they're spinning the, the, the flywheel faster on the user generated company distributed content and the B2C virality. And then they're able to create more content. They have like LinkedIn publishing now and they have people creating more content in that regard. Um, the same philosophy, by the way, if you look at any great high growth enduring business that's like reached over a hundred million dollars a year in revenue, almost all of them have a series of compounding loops in their growth models. But all of those models then spit out the strategy, which then spits out the tactics. And then you can plug things like funnels in, like there is utility to funnels, but if you're skipping directly there, you're gambling, right? Because like some users will see success. Most of them will be trying to figure it out and saying, why is this working for this other person? And it's not working for me. What am I doing wrong? So then they're panicking and trying all these other tactics that they're advertised you know, in, in the process and they waste a whole bunch of money and get themselves in trouble. Um, so so, like, so let me, let me try and unpack this uh, for a yeah. second, Travis, kind of just, yeah, uh, you can tell if, I get excited I'm understanding stuff, right? it yeah. and, and explaining it to the audience. But so mm -hmm. instead of just, you know, having a, a client comes in, a customer comes in, they, they come out, you're saying that you're creating a model to where, yeah, you can have marketing dollars, you can have marketing strategies, whether it's a sales funnel, whether it's SEO, whether it's paid ads, whatever, but if someone comes in, what are you doing in your business model to create one person coming in that when they take actions leads to additional people coming in or additional notoriety or spreading the brand? Yes. Um, for example, in our business, we run a business finance marketplace, loans, lines of credit for small business owners. And I know, well, yeah, we can go out, we can do advertising to bring one client in who gets financing. But then I started thinking, well, what if we just advertise to all these business coaches who already have a bunch of clients, and now we're actually yep. bringing in something that's more yep. sustainable yep. and brings in multiple right. people? Is that kind of the idea? Exactly. So what you described was a specific type of sales loop. Now, if you think about a sales loop, if you think about a you know company like HubSpot, for example, and they have yeah. a sales team, if you if you think about the economics of that loop and you model it out, you know, okay, this, like if we have three reps, they're going to bring us and they're fed by our lead loop. They're going to bring us this number of, of customers into the process, which will produce this amount of revenue, which we then can repurpose if the economics are correct to pour into new reps, right? That can bring us new customers that can finance. And you can take a shortcut to that 
doing exactly what you said, which is called a VAR loop, a value-added reseller loop, right? Because every time you're inside sales teams, team functions, you've now created an exponential wheel because every single sale you make to a value-added reseller will make sales for you in the background, right? Now you have to have very specific economics to allow you to do something like that because you need margin for your inside sales team and they, you also need margin for the value-added resellers to make an incentive on those sales. And you also need yeah. margin to run your business and pay all your staff and yourself, right? You can do that. You can take shortcuts to that if you raise money as well. But oftentimes when companies raise money, and I've raised over $100 million in my career, like oftentimes the, the shortcut is to create an unsustainable model that you then have to try to scramble to edit over time. Uh, because you would need to continue to feed it with cash that you don't have by selling pieces of that company. If you don't have a plan for how to bail the water out of the boat faster than it comes in the holes that you've drilled, then you're going to sink. So like, that's one thing that a lot of folks don't realize as well. But yes, that's a perfect view of, of that sort of thing. Good stuff. Well, a lot of the audience at this point, Travis, say, wow, I've learned a ton. Amazing. All the different experiences, you know, the the loops there of, of marketing and value and making that flywheel work, understanding what creates a business that's sellable versus one that's not. And, and then getting more than just the right mindset, but asking the right questions to foretell. Mostly, I'd say they just want to learn. They just want to take some action, right? This uh -huh. is not a podcast where it's passive. Yep. And there's so much information, knowledge, and expertise that you bring to the table. The audience would love to kind of take that next step. Where can they go mm -hmm. to connect with you? You mentioned the book. Yeah. Uh, I know you've got uh, you know different uh, you know websites online. Mm -hmm. Where what's the next step someone can take who really mm -hmm. wants to be able to create an exitable business? And, and something that creates true value in the mm -hmm. world. I think a lot of people maybe feel like, like you did at, at one point where you're like, oh, I'm doing online poker. I'm doing this, I'm doing that, mm -hmm. but I'm not really leaving a legacy and making the world a better place. I want to do that with my yeah. business and I need the mentorship to do it. What, right. Where can they connect? I mean, what a great question. And, and first of all, like a lot of the stuff that you heard on today's show, you would not really ever hear from other sources. And I'll tell you why. First and foremost, venture-backed founders that are in the press a lot don't know or don't have to for a long time create sustainable businesses, right? And, and the reason for that is they can continue to raise capital and create like unsustainable paths. So it's not necessarily something that's sexy for them to talk about. They want to talk about top line revenue and how much headcount they have and things like that and how they're saving the world. You also don't often hear it from bootstrapped founders because a lot of those folks that are gurus in that space have gotten lucky on their first couple swings at, at the plate and are just teaching the tactics they specifically use that worked for them. And so a lot of other bootstrapped folks will go straight there. The only place that you really find this information is like the top of the top of the nerddom of like the billion dollar companies. And oftentimes those people are so focused on building their own stuff that they're not going to take time to like proliferate that information to the masses. Um, so like, thankfully for the first time in my career, I'm like stepping out from that seat and into like, Hey, let me disseminate some of this knowledge. Cause it's been so impactful for me where you can find me. Uh, you find me on Instagram at Travis Stefan, S T E F F E N. Um, I've just started to be active on social media for the first time in my career. I've seen it as a massive distraction for so many years, um, but I am trying to, to teach more because I get a lot of, of just personal fulfillment 
out of that finally does not mean I'll stop being a student. I'll probably always continue to be buying every single online course I can find, uh, learning from as many mentors as I can acquire and, and still staying in school. A lot of people kind of poo-poo college still, but those people who do, I'm going to get an informational edge on. And the people who only go to college, I'm going to get an informational edge on them as well. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn as well. Um, just look up my name. I'm the one that looks like me with the, the big thick beard and looks like a lumberjack. Um, and other than that, I mean, you'll probably find things online about me, maybe press features I've had or, or things along those lines, other podcasts I've been on. If you go to my personal site, at least at this point in time, hasn't been updated in several years. So it's on my list to do here pretty soon now that I'm actually going out and talking to the world again. Um, but, uh, but yeah, connect with me on social media. Um, if you're, if you're interested in building, you know, your growth models and whatnot, that's, that is what we do. Um, the, I'm going to give you the business name, but like, it doesn't even have a website yet. We had to pull it down because there was too much demand early on and I hadn't built any infrastructure. Uh, yeah. the company's called growthteam.ai, uh, and we're effectively trying to create like an AI around being the brain of your business and, and creating the growth model that then tells you here's exactly what needs to be done next based on the qualitative strategy and the quantitative numbers feeding through your business that then can inform which vendors to hire, what roles do I need? What do we need to execute on tactically speaking, knowing that all of that is fed into one cohesive system. So you're not just throwing random gears at a wall. You're actually building a clock, right? You're building something that is really intricate and when it spins, it does a very specific job for you, which is spit out money. Amazing stuff, guys. So Travis, Stefan, that's S-T-E-F-F-E-N, Instagram, obviously LinkedIn, uh, which is a really underutilized platform still, according to Gary Vaynerchuk and others. Definitely agree. So make sure you're connecting with him on Instagram and LinkedIn, uh, TravisStefan.com uh, as well. And you should definitely be ordering his book. And I'm going to order a copy right now. The name of the book is Viral Hero, How to Build Viral Products, Turn Customers into Marketers, and Achieve Superhuman Growth. That is exactly you know, the value bomb that he was just dropping there in terms of creating a flywheel where you're taking action and exponentially it grows the business instead of linear growth, which is not exponential. So yeah. Travis, a big thanks to you for taking time to share these value, valuable insights, eight exits, and uh, we'll all be looking forward uh, to growthteam.ai going live very soon so that we can implement these growth strategies that we learn. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me. Looking forward to hearing any questions that pop up as a result. And we have to do another episode at some point, at some point. Oh, soon. no question. Yeah, we're going to definitely do that. Right on. All right. Thanks, Travis. Are you looking for more seven-figure secrets, content, or even how you can launch your own recession-proof business? Then check out sevenfigures.com. That's the digit seven, F-I-G-U-R-E-S.com, where we share more videos, stories, strategies, funding solutions, entrepreneurial education, and even the secret business type that's recession-proof. Thank you for listening, and if you're finding value in our podcast, please give us a five-star and invite others to join the club.